Hello, welcome to Unbiased with me, Darshi Harindra. I help organizations rethink how they use data and new technologies in a compliant, unbiased, and inclusive way. I'm on a mission to rehumanize technology so that we can max out on all the potential benefits it brings whilst keeping people very much at the center of its oversight and success. Now, this podcast is very much centered on the human side of the equity and inclusion equation. Through guests sharing their stories of how bias has affected and continues to affect their day-to-day lives, we can get a glimpse into the beautifully complex fabric interwoven into our communities. And we can learn about some of their work in trying to address or combat the ill effects of some of those biases. I'm joined today by Charlotte Fall. Charlotte is the founder of Purple Consulting, a diversity, equity and inclusion consultancy uniquely specialising in disability inclusion. Charlotte's professional background lies in marketing across the globe. Before founding Purple Consulting, Charlotte spent 13 years at GlaxoSmithKline in global pharmaceutical marketing roles in the UK and in Singapore, leading multiple global implementation projects and leading large teams. Charlotte has a disability, chronic pain, which resulted in Charlotte being on long-term sick leave. And when she returned to work, she realized just how many barriers people with disabilities face in the workplace and how rarely disability is prioritized in DEI plans. The fact that so many people in business already have disabilities and yet very few share them is what compelled Charlotte to move into this space. So she set up Purple Consultancy to work with businesses who want to build better workplaces for their staff with disabilities. And in her spare time between consulting and parenting, Charlotte also teaches Pilates. Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you. So Charlotte, Could you start by sharing your story in your words and in a bit more detail with us, particularly your journey with chronic pain? Yeah, sure. So I have had chronic pain since I was about 18, 19. Um, And I'm now much older than that. (laughs) So I've had it um, kind of, I I can't remember exactly when it started, but I've had it sort of 18, 20 years. And it was always something I just lived with and um, was able to kind of work around. I grew up in the UK. I live in uh, Singapore now, but I always lived until a few years ago in the UK and kind of through university, I used to have a lot of, it was always back pain, lower back pain. And I, I have seen every type of professional you could imagine. There is not one thing someone would say, have you tried this? And you'd be amazed how often people say, sort of, have you tried physio? <laughs> you know, having um, spent God knows how much uh, over the years on physio. And it was very, um, it was always annoying. And I, I started my marketing career um, in my early 20s. And I, it always used to bother me throughout that time, but kind of just got on with it. As I moved through Glaxo, I then went on maternity leave and my pain was getting quite a lot worse. Often people say, is it because of, you know, pregnancy? But actually it, it wasn't. It was before that, that it was getting more challenging. And 
one of the things with chronic pain is you can you have flares so you can have some days where the pain is like a two or a three out of ten uh, and others where it's a lot more severe like a six seven eight you know into a nine ten out of ten and through pregnancy it fluctuated and I had our son and then I returned back to work and throughout this period I the pain was getting significantly worse and I moved back into um, a senior marketing director role at Glaxo I was in the UK and it just became so unbearable and it was I had all kinds of sciatic symptoms that I ended up taking a week off work I'd had loads of scans within this time they found an anomaly it's not a very common anomaly and they really decided out of all of the things that could happen I would need to have an operation had the operation which was pretty traumatic and pretty it was a huge surgery and I basically ended up spending a year more than a year recovering from it Um, and through that time I was on sick leave I was very lucky to work for a company that had a very good policy it's actually a disability policy so it was a sick leave policy and then a disability policy and I got a lot of support through that and then eventually returned to work back at GSK and again had a lot of support with that and even despite the support that I had it was really challenging coming back to work you know it affected everything by that point I could sit for long enough to work throughout the day but chronic pain is is very poorly understood there is no there is no kind of studies well there actually are now and it's all around mindfulness and things like that that have helped but there's no medicine you can take none of the pain meds ever worked I was on all of the really strong stuff that kind of sends you a bit wild but still didn't actually help with the pain and so then I had a slow transition back to work and I can talk more about what I was doing in that time but I'd always been interested in people and culture and DEI side of the business so I moved into that space at Glaxo to lead culture change strategy and program for the UK business and also built my experience as a person with a disability having experienced disability at work um, to drive change in the business around our systems, processes, culture and leadership when it came to uh, disability inclusion. So I still have chronic pain today. I'm in pain now. I'm always in pain. Um, but it becomes something that you that you uh, manage. I don't like that word so much, but um, you, you kind of live with and you have your... Uh, your routine with it and you kind of learn to predict it and I do a lot of neural pathway rewiring and kind of a lot of the psychological side of it is how I manage it best now Um, so yes that's that's my story and then I should say sorry having because we were in Singapore I then couldn't continue my UK role because I was based here and I thought you know what there's no better time than now to try and do this on my own for a bit and set up the consultancy to go and work with businesses who are looking at disability under the DEI banner. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I was interested to know whether you approached your employer as someone with chronic pain at the outset or was it something that came much more through when you at, when things um, escalated and then you needed that surgery? And so there was that kind of really tangible, tangible explanation from that employee perspective. Was it something that you were comfortable being open with um, from those early in your early career? Or is it something that you just you kind of managed on your own? Yeah, it's a this is the thing with invisible disabilities. And we know that 80, if not more percent of disabilities are invisible. I I had a very good manager at the time before I went off. Um, 
and she knew and she you know was supportive etc the the problem is because it was invisible you would so i i did a um i did a video for a a wellness um I don't know, like at Fern Cotton, she's quite well known in the UK and she was doing healing stories as part of her wellness brand. And I did a video for it and put it on LinkedIn. And the overwhelming response was, I had no idea how bad it was. You hid that from us. And actually, I I didn't hide it. I said it. But I think because people, because you don't look disabled, whatever that means, people just underestimate it. And, you know, so uh, little examples like I would um, have a desk that I try to use every day. And we did actually have a scheme at work whereby you could you know, um, officially ask for a desk to be made yours because we worked in hot desking. But I would always try and leave my stuff on the same desk. I put a note to say, you know, I've got a bad back. And not always people from my team, but people would just ignore it and would still sit there. And it sounds small. But I was always used to get into work a little bit later because I dropped my son at nursery and nursery didn't open open on time. And then you come into work and someone's sitting at your desk and then you've got to move all your stuff. It just didn't feel great. So I felt like I was telling people it was bad. Um, but I think I think I don't know. Maybe you need more evidence of it, or you know, the video I did was quite hard hitting. So maybe you you need to see how awful it is to have the impact. But that was a challenge for me. And also, you know, there's only so much support a company can give you without literally, you know, changing the workload. And that was another challenge as well. It was a big job, Um, and I loved it. And I loved the work I did. I loved the team, but it. Talking talking about an invisible disability is very difficult already. And then on top of that, there is the, and what can my employer actually do about it? And do I trust that they are going to support me with the accommodations I really need? Which for me was a lot of working from home and that really helped. Uh, and Glaxo did help with that. They let me um, work completely flexibly, which was great. It's, it's a real challenging one. That was a really interesting stat that you shared and I don't know if everyone knows that, but that you, I think you said 80, 80% of disabilities are invisible. And I kind of wanted to break down that the term disability a bit more because it's, it's a label that has been around forever, but its meaning has and continues to evolve and cover a plethora of things. And yet for me, and I think for many, and I remember even discussing this with um, a guest, Ainsley Hooper, um, maybe a, over a year or so ago. Um, she she is disabled and she is in a wheelchair. That's what that's the image that we have, right? Is that you know the sign that you see how many times a day on bathrooms and um, public services, etc. It's the person in a wheelchair, and that actually is not resembling the fact that that's actually only barely and that will be a fraction of the 20% of disabilities that are just there so what what is your view on on that term disability is that something is is the language around disability something that we need to tackle here what are some of the 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 challenges that you're grappling with and trying to change from a culture perspective when it comes to invisible disabilities yeah So you've hit on a couple of points there. So one is the term and then there's the definition. It is unfortunate that the term has dis and then ability in it because it sounds like 
lack of ability, less ability. Yes. How I interpret it and the social model of disability um, interprets it is what is somebody disabled by? So if we just get, go to a, 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 the definitions of disability, there are loads. They've all got similar uh, a similar tone to them, but the United Nations is the one that we use. And they, they say persons with disability enclose them who have long-term physical, mental, intellectual or sensory impairments, which in interaction with various barriers may hinder their full and effective participation in society on an equal basis. So I don't want to get too in, kind of dig deep into it, but actually there's some really important points in there. First of all, they they pull out the, that it's more than physical. So somebody who uses a, a wheelchair may not just have a physical disability, but they likely do have a physical disability. So some someone who may have physical, mental, so mental health, intellectual or sensory impairments. So that includes anyone who has long-term conditions like Crohn's or epilepsy, someone who might be deaf or hard of hearing or visually impaired or blind, um, people with ADHD and autism, um, mental health conditions, diabetes, etc., as well as physical disabilities. So actually what we're talking about is a huge number of impairments, conditions, whatever word you want to to use. The disability bit comes that when in interaction with barriers in society, they may hinder full and effective participation. So actually what we look at is the angle that society is not built, our world is not built for people with disabilities. And a lot of disabled folk, not everyone, but a lot of disabled folk will say, if you remove those barriers, I use a really obvious one, if there were ramps on all sidewalks, if that barrier was removed by society, somebody who uses a wheelchair would have full access to the to the paths, to the sidewalks. So actually a lot of the barriers are built by society and barriers can include physical barriers. They can include the stigma and the fear around talking to people about disability. There's a huge number of barriers. A big barrier for me to bring it to life would be an expectation of five days in an office. So that is a barrier that's been put up by society and an expectation of a company. And that would disable me from having the opportunity to go and work for that company because I wouldn't be able to do uh, five days a week. So that's what we're talking about with disabilities and physical, mental, intellectual, sensory. Um, Obviously, there is visible physical. I have invisible physical. And so, yeah, 80% of disabilities are invisible um and so what we are often talking about with businesses is of course people who use wheelchairs and who might have visible disabilities but actually the the bcg just did a study to show that on average 25 percent of employees in all business at and i believe it's at all levels but this will absolutely be at all levels have a disability the problem is people don't talk about it so disability is it's already in our business. We are surrounded by disability. We're all affected, whether it's us or a friend or a family member, we are all in one way impacted by disability. And there is fear around the word. I see it as a neutral word that I use to describe what we're describing about, but I look at it less about this person has something and more how do we enable this person and what barriers do we need to remove in society so that this individual can access the world on an equal basis to other people and what does that look like when i hear that hear that back you could almost flip it to say that it's not that people have disabilities it's that 
our environment is not fit for purpose. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, which is which is a really interesting way to think about it if you if you want organizations to be always more more inclusive about about that term because I suppose it it depends different people will assign a different yet yeah, weighting and meaning to that word and for some yeah it's a it's a tool for some it's a label it's an identity um so it, it's a, I think it's a really interesting example about how as with many aspects of DEI, language is actually quite an important place to start because it frames the way you view a problem or an issue or a person. What are your thoughts then, Charlotte? In in the corporate organisational sense, is there a case for teams and staff being asked as a matter of course what accommodations they need to do yeah. their job? Whether or not, you know, you have some, whether or not you can call yourself disabled according to that definition. Yeah. So great question. And my view on this is any great leader, and I use that word to describe any line manager, would, when they start working, someone starts working for them and throughout that person working for them would be having the conversation about how do you work best? What do you need to bring your best self to work. I don't necessarily like the language full self, but so that you can perform at your best, what do you need? What does a great working environment look like for you? And and really, that's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about whether we call it accommodations or access needs, whether it's somebody who needs flexible working or whether it's somebody who is deaf and you know needs to make sure that there's closed captions on all videos actually that conversation is is great leadership the problem is if you don't have trust in your business that your employees trust you with what is very personal information so of course no one should ever have to share it no one has to share anything about their disability at all an ideal world is that everybody who needs some has an access need however small feels comfortable and confident to share it so that a company can do what they need to do to support that person to bring their best self to work. So I I wouldn't say, I mean, people, companies are now fo- focusing on self-ID campaigns, which I think is a, a good place to start, where you are asking people to self-identify. Before you do that, though, you need to be clear what you're going to do with the data and you need to have the trust. And for very good reason, a lot of people don't share this information. And the data, to be honest, suggests that they shouldn't because we know that there's discrimination. We know that it it impacts redundancy rates. We, you know, there is data out there to show that the level, uh, the playing field isn't level for people with disability and that discrimination, and I don't mean overt discrimination, I mean, you know, subtle discrimination in all its many ways that it affects many of us is very real. So companies if they're going to do that, need to start really thinking through first, and it doesn't happen overnight, how do we build trust in our business so that people feel comfortable to share their health condition, impairment, so that we can understand how we as a business are disabling them from bringing their best selves to work every day? I mean, if we could solve that trust issue at its real core, I think that could that really knocked down a lot of the dominoes for inclusion in its broadest sense. 
but we also know we're in a little bit of a time of DEI fatigue, low budgets, uh, and there are so many different angles that an organization could be hitting, particularly if they're in a, a medium to low trust organization, that probably suggests that there'll be other issues and things that, that staff don't feel comfortable raising um, that affect goes to the effect in their workplace culture. What are your thoughts on how we might be able to draw some of the various dimensions of equity and inclusion together across other areas of DEI. So when when you're, and I guess from your own experiences through Purple Consulting, you're going in with, in the DEI context, one, one niche of disability inclusion. I think you've shared with us today how actually it leaks into several other areas and actually is much more all-encompassing than its term can sometimes suggest. But how do you help get an organization all over the line or how do we get bang for buck when organizations say they want to be better, but they haven't got the financial and or non-financial resources to achieve it in the time frame that we would like? I mean, I hate a hack in the inclusion world, but what are some of your solutions and suggestions to this? So for me, there's to, to really make a change and not to just you know whether it's performative DEI which you know there's a lot of noise about companies putting you know grand statements on their websites and then the employees are going you know I've never felt you know I feel a huge amount of discrimination etc to, to really make a change beyond that or just a few tactical changes it, it takes time there, there is there's no quick fix I um so I know some very um some real DEI advocates who will always say, start with your policies. So get your policies right. And I think that's, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And you do need policies around this, of course, it needs to kind of be the starting point. But I'm, I'm really interested in where I believe change can also happen and companies need to start. And this doesn't necessarily include any budget is Inclusive leadership, supporting leaders to be more inclusive in the way they lead teams. And that doesn't matter whether you're talking about gender equality, about LGBT, the LGBTQ plus community, people with disabilities. There are some skills and ways of leading that, and this isn't how most of us, I certainly never had any training on inclusive leadership. Um, a lot of us are taught. So, you know, this is, and, and it does start with uncovering bias, but it won't be solved by doing a one-off unconscious bias training, but really starting to understand our biases and um, being more aware of how identity shapes the way that we and others experience the world. If you as a leader can listen to somebody in your team who tells you a challenge that they're experiencing because of their identity or just a challenge, generally but if someone can talk to you about it if it doesn't resonate with you because you've never experienced that are you able to show humility and think I don't know this experience but I believe your experience I hear you and I'm going to help work with you on how we can overcome that and remove barriers and support you with it I think a lot of people don't feel believed and don't feel heard because a lot of what we experience is 
is often subtle. It's, you know, it's microaggressions. It's small things that happen over time. So I would actually start with leaders and line managers because you can have the best policy in the world, but if you don't trust that you can go to your manager with something and you don't feel confident using speak up lines, whatever it might be, you're not going to talk about it. The policy isn't, it, it w- won't do anything. So actually where I'm interested in starting is how do we support leaders go through the process of being unaware to being more aware of entity and uh, identity and why people hide their disabilities, for example, um, to them actively being able to step off the sidelines and and break down barriers for people with um, marginalised identities to start to remove those barriers and and build a more inclusive world. I don't think if we, I think if we don't do anything with leadership, uh, line managers, we, we won't see the change. It's the culture change piece that's so important. I'm very excited to hear someone address that issue of the policy policy versus people is kind of how I, I've put it. Um, I think you're right. Yes, you need a policy for sure, but it, it's not it's not the be all and end all. And the inclusive leadership piece is so important in bringing that policy to life. If your leaders are stuck in, right, staff member comes to them, shares something and their response is, oh, let me just look and see what the policy says. That's not the connect. You need like a real connection between policy leaders and the people to to bring all of those things together and to life. So another point I think really worth making across the spectrum, Charlotte, thank you for that. I'm interested in your thoughts on how leaders are coping post-COVID, post-remote full-time, remote working, as mandated. Because I know there's quite a lot of data on how beneficial the working remotely policies that had to come about because of the pandemic actually were to a lot of the disabled community and you Charlotte yourself shared that that's a real barrier for you having to work five days a week from home and we had this this point in time where for all of the tragedies and the fallout and difficulties that we're having through the pandemic the workplace really changed quite fundamentally And now we're coming out on the other side of it and there's this real tension between do we keep remote working? What what does mobility even mean today? Hybrid working? Can you force people to come back to work? And I think it exposes quite a lot in that disability space because you're going to find people that actually were able to flourish now being hamstrung again by these barriers it is, on the other hand, an incredibly tricky situation for leaders. So I'm, t- I'm totally with you. Inclusive leadership, leadership that is fit for the workplace of tomorrow is going to be key in establishing trust and changing things. But I'm also sensitive to the fact that that's a really daunting, exhausting yeah. prospect. <laughs> where, where, do you, where do you tell people to start? And particularly in managing that the hybrid piece or or if we move to this stage where we are saying, okay, everyone gets to, to share their needs. Now these leaders are saying, I now have 
50 different requirements and I just don't know where to start because we need to have a line somewhere. We need to have a norm. Otherwise, all hell breaks loose. What do we say? I mean, that's a huge question. So, and it's a good one. Let me break it down. You asked at the beginning, what are you hearing? I, so no doubt everyone that I've spoken to ha, ha, has felt a big shift. So I think that's the first thing. And I clearly hybrid working felt very different for a lot of people. A lot of people with disabilities, it benefited because suddenly they are not having to ask for an accommodation. The principle of equity is you don't give everyone the same thing. You give people what they need, um, what they individually need to be able to thrive. So, and I think that's that's one thing I always like to mention because I think there's a misunderstanding or, you know, if we give flexible working to one person, we have to give it to everybody. No, you don't. That's, that's not the principle of equity. I... I also, so that's the first thought. The second thought is inclusive leadership and some of the things around humility, creating safe spaces, good listening, etc., will come naturally to some people. Um, I also think for some people it will always be a challenge. I, I think once people have, once managers have gone through an experience of supporting someone with a disability, with a long-term health condition, they, they tend to feel more confident with it because then they do understand the process. They do understand how to support someone. I don't have the perfect answer for what we do about there's a million priorities, but, you know, you only need to read a few HBR articles and, and read stuff in the news to see that companies won't survive. Company, companies, the companies that are really doing well it won't be just because of this but often are very strong on their DEI strategies their equitable work environments their inclusion their I always think diversity for me in a way sort of comes last in the order I think it will only become more important because people expect it and it's and it's becoming a lot more visible you know there's loads of stuff in the press at the moment about toxic cultures and you know well-known um media companies that are in the in the news for toxic culture, so tolerance for it is declining. But I think leaders probably feel, well, and, and some who have got quite good culture scores are going, I don't really sort of see what this is all about. You know, we're in a good place with it. But those who maybe don't, you know, through kind of engagement surveys, some of the smaller companies I work with don't do them as formally, but they do listening sessions. Um, you know, some of them are thinking, we've had a horrendous few years we're not hitting our targets. I don't have time to do all of this training. And it's it's really difficult. And some companies won't prioritize it at all. And some will do bits and bobs. And I think we will see, I'm interested to see what happens over the next year um, as to how the DEI, I use that as a kind of overall term for a lot of what we're talking about, shift changes, the, the data that comes out, the stories we hear to see the impact it's having, because I think it will be strong. And I think companies will start to feel that they need to do more especially in the inclusive leadership space. I think that's right. It's going to be really interesting to see how the next year or few go in this in this arc or wave um, in the space. So uh, thank you for sharing sharing your thoughts on that because you're right. It's not it's not something that we're gonna gonna solve uh, in a in one podcast session, Charlotte. But I love that we get to talk it out and keep chipping away so charlotte leave us with maybe one thing that 
the just that the, the low hanging fruit that you see organisations overlook when it comes to disability. So low hanging fruit, I I always say, uh, and I always have to caveat with this this that it won't change everything. But I always say to companies, some of the stuff you can start doing is looking at your comms, your internal and external comms, and making them accessible to as many people as possible. So it's very practical things like um, how do you, and we we did a lot of focus on this at, at Glaxo, how do you ensure there's closed captions on all videos? So anybody who's deaf or hard of hearing, or even for people who are in a, you know, don't don't like the sensory overload of noise or are working in noisy places can access your video content. How do you make sure that when your company posts on LinkedIn and they post an image, that they put the alt text behind the image so that somebody who's using a screen reader, which reads out what's on the screen, um, who is visually impaired or blind, can access your content. Color contrast, oh my gosh, since doing this work, have I seen terrible color contrast around the world it's really easy to do you just need the the color number when you're designing a website for example um of the 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 font colors and the background colors you're using you put it in this tool it's free it takes two minutes and it tells you whether the contrast is good enough for people who are visually impaired um and also eat it you know poor color color contrast um is challenging to see all of these things you can do and they take a bit of time but you know it's like that uh, closed captions on teams and zoom and stuff as well but they for me show a starting point of okay we're committed to this there is nothing more ironic than um, a company or a person posting about disability inclusion on linkedin and their post isn't accessible to everybody. So that's where I always say real low-hanging fruit. Start with your communications. The other one is hashtags. Don't keep it if it's two words or more. Have the, the beginning of the word as a capital letter so a screen reader can read it out. It's small things like that that cost nothing and you just need, a, you just need to be shown them will make your comms more accessible. So that's where I would always tell a company to start on day one. But day two, I would start moving on to... Um, starting your journey of building trust but that's not what you asked <laughs> so I won't go into that <laughs> no definitely covered trust and, and as I said you're preaching to conversion on that but thank you so much Charlotte there are just tons of practical stuff there in your response that even I'm going to take away I'm just updating my website at the moment and I did not even think about that color contrast piece um and I think it is something that as you say it's it's super simple and doesn't cost you much if anything, and something that organizations at an organization level you can just build into your processes. Really, really appreciate all of your insights and sharing from your personal lived experience, your personal journey, and all of your professional experience as a DEI consultant, Charlotte. And I can't wait to see how things unfold both in the industry and in your world. Um, so I hope our paths keep crossing Thank you again. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbiased with me, Darshi Harindra. I derive so much energy and learn so much from speaking to such inspiring guests and amplifying diverse voices. If you feel the same way, please do subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you consume your content from and follow me and the podcast so you can get all the latest episodes as they drop. 
I'd also love to hear from you. What works for you? What do you like to hear more of? You can connect with me via my website, darshiharindra.com. Until next time, stay open, 